Welcome to London Low Paid at Large. I'm London Low Paid. Bill Keller points out in his new book that the incarceration rate per 100,000 in the United States is roughly twice that of Russia's and Iran's, four times that of Mexico's, five times of England's, six times of Canada's, and nine times that of Germany. In addition, parole and probation regulate the lives of four and a half million Americans, over twice as many as are confined in prison. The book, What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration is published by Columbia Global Reports and brings Mr. Keller, the Pulitzer Prize-winning former executive editor of the New York Times and founding editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project to our show now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You provide those numbers at the beginning of your new book in which you try to explain how America became so addicted to mass incarceration and how we might finally reform a system which houses a disproportionate number of black and brown population. Was this something you were concerned about before Neil Barsky asked you to be the founding editor of the Marshall Project? No, no more than any other citizen who reads the news. Hmm. I'd never really covered criminal justice, unless you count a few months when I was a rookie reporter at the Oregonian covering night cops. Um, so when Neil approached me and asked me to join him in this venture, um, at the time I was writing a column for the Times, so I decided I'd write some columns on criminal justice and see what, what's, what the deal was. Uh, and I got hooked. It's, uh, I mean, everybody sort of knows the phrase mass incarceration mm. and that we are copious jailers, world leaders and outliers. Um, but beyond that, prisons and jails are sort of a mystery. I mean, other parts of the criminal justice system, police, courts, get a, quite a bit of public attention. They do a lot of their work in the open and they deserve a great deal of attention. But prisons, you know, those walls that were built to keep people in were also built to keep people out, hmm. uh, including nosy journalists. So I thought I would try to explore some lessons I thought I'd learned about the purpose, the history, the context of mass incarceration. Beginning in the late 1970s, the number of Americans in prisons and jails increased considerably from a norm of 110 prisoners per 100,000 people to about 500. What led to that increase? There's a combination of things. Um, there, there, there was rising crime, uh, not times five, but crime, crime had gone up in the 60s and 70s. Ironically, crime was going down across the 90s rather dramatically, fell by about a third. But the perception of crime was, it was a really salient issue because a number of politicians leapt on it. There was the war on drugs, which was a major factor and closely related to the war on drugs, the white backlash against the black empowerment movement, which made a lot of white voters vulnerable to fear mongering. Aren't the incarcerated disproportionately black men? In 2005, the New York Times reported that one and a half million black men between the ages of 25 and 54 were either incarcerated or dead, and nearly one in 12 black men in that age group uh, were uh, behind bars compared to one in 60 non-black men. Right. Yeah, blacks make up about 13% of the population of the United States. 
they make up nearly 40% of the incarcerated population. You note that liberals and conservatives were equally responsible for the situation and that Democratic House Speaker Tip O'Neill's response to the crack cocaine overdose of Lynn Bias, a Boston Celtics draftee, was to push through the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, which imposed mandatory sentences, uh, asset forfeitures, and severe uh, sanctions on crack cocaine, uh, the crack cocaine being favored by black ghetto residents, while white consumers of powdered cocaine faced much more lenient penalties. Right, and that bipartisan construction of mass incarceration continued in the 90s, in the, the famous 1994 Crime Act, which was signed by Bill Clinton and passed through the Judiciary Committee chaired by Joe Biden, uh, did a number of other things, uh, more mandatory sentences, um, it abolished federal Pell Grants for college students who were incarcerated, which had been a a real boon. That, that's been undone, and it looks like Pell Grants will return to incarcerated students. But yes, it's been, it hasn't been just the Republicans who've been hmm. uh, riding the wave of fear and uh, fear of crime. So has Joe Biden been asked about the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which yes, he, and he pushed through when he was the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman? Yes, he's to a large extent apologized for it and acknowledged that it was an overreaction. Um, he, the one one thing that he has done is more symbolic in ter than uh, having a huge effect is his recent um, order that marijuana, not possession of marijuana, not be considered a, a, a imprisonable crime, and that he essentially gave clemency to 6,000 or so people, most of whom are now already out of prison, but who have the stigma of an arrest felony on their record. Um, you know, that was at least a gesture, of, a concrete gesture towards the, the admission that the 1994 Crime Act was over the top. Didn't President Reagan insert the profit motive into the prison business when he allowed the Corrections Corporation of America to pioneer the idea of privately run for-profit prisons? You've read the book. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we have an hour's conversation ahead of us. And and uh, if I would just simply say, so, Bill, w what's this all about? That would leave a lot of time to fill. Yeah. No, I'm glad you read the book. It's short. so Yeah, that helped. But there's no, a lot of material in it, and there's a, a, a lot of complications to this story. The best stories are all complicated. You asked about Reagan and privatization. Yeah. Um, yes, that's, that is the case. Private prisons hold roughly a tenth of the incarcerated population, but that doesn't tell the whole story because even prisons that are run by the state, managed by the state, contract out an enormous amount of uh, services to for-profit companies, transportation, healthcare, uniforms, uh, food services, telecommunications, which is a particularly touchy one because 
some of the cell phone providers charge exorbitant rates to, for families to keep in touch with their incarcerated loved ones when everybody knows that keeping your family ties going is, is, is one of the most important ways to prevent people from committing crimes when they get out. You note that uh, since the new prison owners were paid the same way as hotel proprietors by occupancy, they had no incentive to prepare prisoners for release. Right. Every, every successful re-entry to the free world was a, a, a lost bonus for the, for the private companies. But haven't the, the numbers decreased since their peak in 2008? Uh, I'm assuming uh, more recently because of the COVID pandemic. Yes, yes. 2008 was the peak of mass incarceration. But, it, so, but it's gone from roughly 500 at the peak, 520 or something um, incarcerated people per 100,000 population hmm. to maybe four, which is still four times what it was in the for most of the 20th century and way more than other countries with that that are you know fully developed democracies so uh well let's talk about some of those other countries uh isn't one of the, what about the prison systems uh, of Norway the Netherlands and Germany what do they do better yeah, I, I should preface this by saying I don't, I realize that we're not Norway. Norway is a small, homogeneous, oil rich welfare state with a, uh, you know, a, a whole different approach to society. Nonetheless, I, I think you know, over the last 15 years or so, there's been a lot of communication between what I would consider the more enlightened corrections officials in, in a number of states and their counterparts in Germany, Norway, Scandinavia, etc. Obviously, we're not going to go do a full Norway, but one thing we can learn from them is the, the philosophy is different. The philosophy in Germany or Norway is if you, they're not anti-punishment. If you commit a crime, you, you should be punished because that's how the state maintains order. But the punishment is that you're deprived of freedom for some period of time. And every, every, in every other respect, you retain your rights as a citizen, the right to be safe, the right to a job, the right to an education, conjugal visits for family unification, the right to vote, which is hmm. uh, almost universal in, in, in developed countries except our own. Um, and the role of the prison is while you're in their custody to ascertain what it was that might have led you to commit a crime and address that problem, whether it's some sort of alienation, anger management, drug addiction, poverty, lack of skills, whatever, so that when you do leave, you're prepared to be a better neighbor, a better citizen. That doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a bad starting point for talking about reforms in the in the American system. Another difference is that American prison guards rarely get more than a few weeks training, while the Germans get 
two years of college courses in psychology, ethics, and communication, and 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 in German jails, don't unarmed guards shoot baskets, play chess, and share a lunch and have conversation with prisoners? That's absolutely right. And of course, American um, correctional officials uh, say that they their main job that prisons are dangerous places and their main job is to maintain order, which, which is why they only get a few weeks of training. It's heavy on crowd control and self-defense. But what the Norwegians and the Germans say is that theirs is, offers superior security because the inmates and the officers are in constant touch with each other. The officers play almost a social worker role and it's their job to know what's going on in the lives of their charges. So if there's some sort of a mental breakdown that's about to happen or a crisis arising, they'll see it coming and they can take steps to, you know, short of throwing somebody into isolation to, to deal with the problems. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Bill Keller. His book, What's Prison for Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration is published by Columbia Global Reports. In his TV ads, Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor of New York, argues that Kathy Hochul's policies have been soft on crime, most notably in the bail laws. Uh, uh, Should we uh, be changing those laws? Because it's become such an important part of this this whole midterm election, uh, uh, Republicans are using uh, are labeling the Democrats as the lab- as the, the uh, as uh, the party that wants to defund the police, and uh, and uh, oppose cash bail. Right. I, I filed my book before the dispute between Zeldin and the governor Hmm. broke out. But I I have done a little bit of looking just to see, is there evidence that the the reducing cash bail is responsible for the rise in crime? And you can find a few high profile cases, but what seems to be going on with our crime rates is no different from places that have stricter or less strict bail laws. So, again, there's statistical evidence in the field of corrections and criminal justice generally is always to be taken with caveats. Um, Although we do hear uh, in the news on a regular basis about someone who's out on bail committing a crime. Right. Well, that goes to the question of the role media plays in Mm -hmm. mass incarceration. you know, there's long been a, a tendency to sensationalize crimes, especially on local TV, where, where the cliche is, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when um, the war on crime was at its most vociferous, um, a lot of the media outlets played along with it. They picked up the the myth of the super predators, that whole generation of young, at least implicitly black 
teenagers who were growing up, growing up without a conscience and could, could be marauding through your neighborhood that Hillary Clinton famously embraced and, and later disavowed. But even now, pretty much every local news report starts off with a number of cases of some young person committing some crime. It does. That's absolutely true. I do think there's been, or maybe this is just my journalistic optimism asserting itself. I do think that there's been a shift, at least in the how seriously the problem of mass incarceration is taken and other aspects of the criminal justice system like policing now get much more rigorous attention from, from serious news outlets than they used to. Um, there's often been a kind of symbiotic relationship between reporters who cover the cops and the cops themselves. The cops are sources, they're respected figures in the community, uh, and they're often pretty skillful at leaking just the right self-serving bit of information to the right reporter. Um, but I think I think we're, we've gone from being part of the problem to trying to be part of the solution. Didn't one notable Republican politician, Patrick Nolan, claim that George Soros was masterminding a Trojan horse strategy to elect soft on crime prosecutors and bring down the entire criminal justice system? Uh, when, uh, whenever George Soros's name is invoked, you have to wonder whether there isn't an anti-Semitic aspect to it. That's true. I'm, I'm not going to accuse Pat Nolan of being an anti-Semite. He, he's an interesting study. I wrote a profile of him for The New Yorker back in 2015, mm -hmm. which was mainly a piece about how there is a, case, there is a, a movement for criminal justice on the conservative side motivated by different reasons than the, on the progressive side, Name, namely just a sort of libertarian distrust of big government and a sense that a lot of money was being wasted. Uh, Pat Nolan was a, the head of the Republicans in the state, of, state assembly in California, and he got caught in an FBI scheme uh, and charged with bribery, did a plea deal spent a couple of years at a minimum security prison in California and came out disillusioned about the criminal justice system because he, he was sharing his prison with mostly young black men who were in there for some drug related crime. Uh, and they were just being warehoused. They weren't being taught anything or, or given any therapy or, or any attempt to diagnose what their problems were. So Pat, when he got out, became an activist. He became really, although he's not that well known publicly, one of the most influential advocates of a, what has come to be called right on crime, a, a right wing case for criminal justice reform. Where um, does George Soros come into the story? He, he's not well, even a, a, an American citizen. Yeah. My, the piece I wrote was obviously before Trump and Trumpism had, had taken over and before the, the tough on crime notion had reasserted itself. Since then, the, the, support, the conservative supporters of criminal justice reform have largely been muted. And I cite Pat Nolan signing on to an article of this conspiracy theory about George Soros 
being out to undermine the system because because he just hates the criminal justice system. And yeah, the fact that Soros is Jewish is never explicitly stated, but Soros pops up too often in the in the tough on crime rhetoric for it to be just a coincidence. You mentioned uh, that our prisons aren't the most uh, are are often uh, in how hard to get to places there uh, in the country or on islands, uh, and uh, as a result, they're out of sight. Often means out of mind. That's right. A lot part of the reason that their prisons tend to be in out of the way places is their local communities seem to view them as pork barrel projects. They think, build your prison here, we'll get jobs, we'll have, you know, the merchants will be able to sell to a larger population. That There's an element of mythology to that because it turns out that often the prisons hire experienced uh, correctional officers from other places, not, not locally. And having a prison in your midst means that your local courthouse is going to be extra busy and overworked. So the budget for, for that goes through the roof. But the, the real deleterious effect is that it's harder for lawyers and fam especially family members mm -hmm. to, to get together and with their incarcerated family members. So people can't reintegrate into society as easily as if they were more accessible. Exactly. You mentioned corrections officers. Uh, there are a number of words that you uh, say that you prefer not to use. You say you've tried to avoid calling corrections officers guards. Why? Aren't they guarding the patients? They are, and that's what they do. And I, don't, I, I haven't abolished the word altogether, but just uh, they prefer to be called correctional officers, and some of them are more than guards. So I give them the benefit of the doubt. Right? I don't routinely refer to them as guards. Likewise with prisoners, so, some of them dislike being called inmates. All of them dislike being called felons, these sort of collective pejoratives. At the Marshall Project, we have agonized over this for years, literally. Convict? Convict, right. Or, or ex-con, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, a label that means you have trouble getting admitted to college or getting a job. Um, so I, where I come down is I, I will occasionally use the word inmates or even felons to refer to a category that's relevant to the story, like the Florida's big debate over whether felons should have the right to vote after they're released from prison. Um, but I don't describe any individual as a felon or the con convict or because people have names and, and identities that are broader than the, the, the worst thing they've ever done. Aren't all the words we use problematical on one level or another? Prison, jail, penitentiaries? Sure. And language evolves, too. I mean, uh, when we were discussing this at the Marshall Project, I fished out a, a not that old copy of the New York Times style guide, which identified the word queer as a pejor pejorative or slur not to be used in print. And now 
Um, it's the cue of. It's the cue, and you know, kids use it, meaning no disrespect for the person they're talking about. Are penitentiaries intended to be places of penitence? That 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 was their inception. It was about two hundred years ago in Philadelphia. They. A uh, group of Quakers and other do-gooders, including Ben Franklin, incidentally, um, supported the construction of what was called the Eastern State Penitentiary. It's now a museum. It was and intended idea, as a humane alternative to the way crime right. had been dealt with in the former colonies? Yes, exactly. It was The idea was that you would be in your cell, which would be comfortable and have hot water and eating, um, you would be, there was no corporal punishment, no whipping. Uh, you learned a craft like shoemaking. The, the fundamental flaw in the recipe of at Eastern State Penitentiary was the that you lived in complete isolation from other human beings. And we now know that that's uh, a recipe for mental illness. And in fact, the United Nations regards, I think it's 15 days of isolation as uh, 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 torture. Um, but yes, the idea of, 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 of that this is supposed to be a place of penance was a big change from the idea that this is just a place of punishment. And that, that the idea of rehabilitation or second chances or even redemption entered into the mission statement of corrections, at least ostensibly. Um, I, I see the last 200 years as a sort of a series of struggles between our punitive instinct, which I guess came from the Puritans and the more kind of Quaker orientation of belief in second, that the people are redeemable. So eliminated were things like public flogging and public uh, executions, branding, putting people in the stocks. What about forced labor? Forced labor is an interesting story. Um, as you probably know, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery, but there's a big loophole. It said, except as punishment for being convicted of a serious crime. The South took full advantage of that loophole. So instead during of having- Reconstruction. Yeah, during Reconstruction. So instead of having uh, enslaved men and women and children working in the cotton fields, you had convict labor working in the cotton fields and uh, often people who were convicted of crimes that didn't really exist if you were white. Uh. <laughs> Yes. Um, well, there are people today who have suggested abolishing prisons altogether. What do they propose as an alternative? The abolitionists have been around for oh, a long time, uh, the, the pr prison abolitionists specifically. And I have a great deal of respect for them because they've often been ahead of everyone else in identifying the problems of the system, the cruelties of the system and the and the fact that our prison system doesn't really serve public safety. The, the problem I have with 
with the abolitionists is twofold. Um, first of all, it's 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 just hard to imagine that there's going to be this new society where violence goes away and human beings behave like parts of willing parts of the community, and you don't need law enforcement or or prisons. I think if you abolish prisons, something else would grow up that would look an awful lot like prisons. And either that or you'd have some sort of form of mob rule, which is not a desirable end. That's one problem is, is it's just probably not realistic. I could be wrong, but it's probably not realistic to uh, imagine a, a world without prisons. The other problem I have more down to earth is in the, if, if we were gonna abolish prisons, that's gonna take decades or generations. What do you do with the millions of poor souls who are trapped in the system now? And if, the, if abolition becomes an, an absolute and uh, uh, sort of the perfect being the enemy of the good, then a lot of people are gonna pay the price for it and what do you what are you going to say to those people just wait wait for the revolution <laughs> what do new organizations like no new jails propose they propose no new jails just no They're, new jails just keep the ones that we have no abolish the ones no, no new jails for example has called for the closure of rikers island but they are opposed to the other half of bill de blasio's proposal which was to build four more humane, accessible jails in the, in the boroughs. And what about the pilot programs in a number of states that have been organized by the Vera Institute of Justice and Amend? Um, you know, again, I always have to proceed this by saying I realize we're not Norway, mm-hmm. but um, uh, I think if there are there are some heroes in my book. Uh, one subcategory of heroes are the corrections officials who've really made efforts to apply the lessons in in an American context. So for example, one of the first was in Connecticut, a program called True, which where they decided to focus on young adults ages 18 to 25, who are the, you know, crime tends to be a young man's game. So those are the, the ones most likely to represent a risk when they're released. And they created a separate unit that's a little more like a college dormitory than, than a Well, we'll get, to, we'll get to that after we take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I need some windows in my head to light the dark But it's so boarded up with bones and other parts Well, I've been sentenced for a crime I never did And it's been this way ever since I was a kid So I must survive I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Bill Keller. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, What's Prison For? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 
during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Bill Keller. Again, his book, What's Prison for? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration, is published by Columbia Global Report. He's the founding editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project, and he previously spent 30 years at the New York Times as a correspondent editor and op-ed columnist, won a Pulitzer Prize in 1989 for his coverage of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and from 2003 to 2011, he was the Times bureau chief in Johannesburg, covering the end of white rule in South Africa. And now, you've written your first book, actually, that's right. I, I did write Considering short... all the writing you did in the past, you would have thought there would have been a number of books. Well, there were two that I did sign contracts to write and never finished, so I paid the, con the advances back. I want to get back to Europe. Isn't one of the reasons that Europe is so far ahead of the United States is that it's depoliticized the criminal justice system? Judges and district attorneys are appointed and not elected? Yes, I, you know, the State Department runs these programs where they'll gather a group of professionals from some foreign country and bring them on a guided tour of the US. And somehow or other, I ended up hosting a group of German judges hmm. a few years ago and for a conversation about our, our system, respective justice systems. And the German judges were scandalized to learn, or that probably wasn't a surprise, but just aghast at the idea that we have judges running for office on elections, which gives them incentives to pander to the, you know, more likely the conservative base. In fact, not just Europeans, a Fordham University professor, John Pfaff, attributes the racial inequality in numbers of prisoners to an imbalance of political power, tough on crime, prosecutors elected by suburban whites who see the community destruction of, uh, of mass incarceration from a distance, he says. That's exactly right. So the people who are voting on, the, uh, on our district attorneys and judges aren't necessarily the ones who, uh, or at least the ones who are determining it, aren't necessarily the ones from the communities that are affected. That's right. There's a sort of deliberate separation of cause and effect. So what's happening in the prisons? You describe a rehab unit within a Pennsylvania prison that's been dubbed Little Scandinavia. What happens there? What happens there is it's a, it's a little like the Connecticut program experiment that I referred to earlier, except this isn't restricted to young inmates. They've got about... 50 inmates selected by lottery from the, the main, this is a, a prison in Chester, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. It's a medium security prison. Uh, and they they've designed the unit so that it's less like a stack of cages and more like a college dormitory. Um, the, the inmates are expected to take responsibility for their own lives to a large extent. They wake themselves up in the morning. They go to class if they're taking classes or work if they have a job at the prison. They 
do their own laundry. They have access to a kitchen so they can fix their own breakfast. All things that provide a, a sense of normalcy so that it won't be quite as shock, as big a shock when they're set free, which I keep saying over and over again, 95% of the people who are incarcerated are going to be free one day. But in, in that, in Little Scandinavia, don't lifers serve as, as mentors? Is yes, it assumed, they do. Is it assumed that, that uh, because they're there for life, they have developed a, a more reasonable perspective on things? Yeah, and they've just gotten older. I talked to uh, four or five of the eight lifers who are, uh, have jobs as mentors to the younger inmates in this Little Scandinavia unit. Uh, and there's a real sort of maturity and sense of purpose about them. They all did really bad things. They're all paying the price for them. But, um, you know, one of my criticisms of the criminal justice system writ large is that there's such a waste of human potential. And this, using, using lifers as mentors it's something that a number of prisons have, prisons have caught on to, prison administrations have caught on to as a, a useful waste of human capital, a useful use of uh, human capital. There's also a college behind bars at San Quentin. Yeah, there are quite a few co college programs now. They've, uh, the number fell off rather radically in after the 94 crime bill, which then cut off federal aid to you know, Pell Grants to incarcerated students. But um, a lot of places have forged their own programs using various philanthropies. Uh, I said earlier that you should regard all data in the criminal justice system with a grain of salt because the, the variables are so variable. But one area where there is pretty overwhelming evidence, the best of it compiled by the RAND Corporation, is that education, and particularly higher education, post-secondary education, radically reduces the rate of recidivism. Didn't you volunteer to teach a weekly journalism seminar at Sing Sing? What were your 16 students like? Were, uh, did you give them similar assignments to the ones you'd given students at Princeton? I did. Uh, my my tenure at Sing Sing lasted exactly four weeks, and then the pandemic shut everything down. There was there's no been no volunteers allowed in until again recently they've stirred up the program, and I expect to be teaching again next year. My the 16 students who signed up for my course were all in their almost all in their. 50s. They were all in for, uh, or most of them for second degree murder. Mm. Um, they were what's referred to in the prison education game as alumni, meaning that they had earned at least one college degree already on their own. So they were people with some aspirations, at least. Um, I gave them the first assignment I gave them was identical to an assignment I gave my Princeton students the year before, which was to write a scene that you actually witnessed, use three or 400 words to take me there, you know, put, 
show me show me what you saw uh and needless to say the answers that came in from my sing sing class was were were a whole order of difference from the princeton class i had i've forgotten two or three were stories of children encountering dead bodies mm. a couple of them were accounts of the graphic humiliation of a strip search one was the story of a young man or when he was a young man being taken to a brothel as a teenager you know there was none of the you know memorable birthday parties or great first dates or <laughs> you know the soccer game where i scored the, scored the winning goal as i recall there was one of the of the 16 that actually described a happy event and that was discovering in the um, special rooms that they reserved for family visits, a video game that was one of his favorite video games. Are the basic problems that prisons face similar in both men's and women's institutions? They're, they're similar in the sense that prisons are designed for men. 90% of the incarcerated people are men, so I, it's understandable that that's the case. But women do they, commit crimes. Women so do, do, commit do they crime. get different kinds of sentences? They get dif different kinds of treatment while, mm -hmm. while they're in. Uh, they, they get, or maybe it's a way to put it is they get treatment that's based on the way men are treated, whereas mm -hmm. women who end up in prison have much more traumatic histories. Uh, men have trauma, traumas in their childhood too, but women are much more likely to have experienced a sexual violation. And it was a traumatizing effect. Um, and women organize differently in prison. This is, I, whenever I interviewed women who'd done time, I'd ask them what they thought about Orange is the New Black. And they generally said, well, you know, that's a Hollywood version of life in prison. But one thing Orange is the New Black got right is that women organize themselves like families. Men organize themselves along gang lines. Mm. Uh, this is not everywhere, but in, I would say most places, uh, often along racial lines. Um, but women organize themselves around families, uh, which... Hey. And what about literally families? Uh, are the women's prisons more likely to allow uh, mothers to bond with their children? Uh, one of the places that I looked at, I didn't, I didn't attend, but because it was closed for the pandemic. But Bedford Hills is a women's facility outside of New York City, and they've done a remarkable thing. They have a prison nursery where um, women who give birth and hundreds of women give birth in prisons every year. Um, in, the, in the prison nursery at Bedford Hills, the mothers and children are kept together. They're allowed to bond. The first year or so is critical for the psychological development of the infant and, and for the well-being of the mother. They're allowed to stay up till 18 months of age um, and then they have a big playroom for 
older kids to come in and spend time with their mothers. Uh, it serves, Bedford Hills serves women, pregnant women throughout the state of New York. So they have a, a lot of demand for the services. Most states don't have any, anything of the kind. They, they view it as too expensive or they say, well, prisons are no place for kids. Um, but the, this is another area where the scientific data is pretty convincing that uh, children who are brought up in a prison nursery are much more likely to form the necessary bonds with their mothers and with other people than children who are taken from their mothers at birth and given into foster care or family, somebody else in the family. The U.S. Justice Department is reported to be finalizing plans to overhaul the Federal Bureau of Prisons, including a recommendation to increase sentences for prison employees found guilty of sexual abuse against inmates. Well, is there a lot of sexual abuse against inmates, male and female? Yes. That's one where the data is has to be taken with a grain of salt because um, reporting of sexual assault whether it's by another inmate or by a corrections officer, it makes you very vulnerable. But they've done some surveys of formerly incarcerated men and women and found that it is still quite common, twice as common that women are victimized as that men are victimized. But um, it's still, it's still a, enough of a common feature that the old cliches about dropping soap in the shower um, still hold true. Bill Keller is my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large. We're talking about his book, What's Prison for? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration, published by Columbia Global Reports. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In the book, you make a number of suggestions uh, of effective ways to reduce prison populations. Should we talk about a few? Uh, one that uh, strikes me is your suggestion that we divert people into mental health and addiction programs or probation or community service rather than sending them off to prison. Yeah, the, obviously the one thing you could do to make life in prison less unbearable is to have fewer people in prison in the first place. Mm -hmm. We, we know how to do that. It's not a lack of imagination. Um, one thing we can do is, um, is divert people from prison in the first place if, if they have mental health issues or addiction issues. Uh, but this, that's been tried in, in several states. Uh, another thing they could do is roll back these mandatory minimum sentences, which you know, we not only incarcerate more people than other countries, we incarcerate them for longer periods of time for the same crime. We could raise the age at which youthful offenders are treated in, as adults and, and end up in adult prisons. We could do more compassionate release of older prisoners who are beyond the point where they're going to be a threat to anybody. Um, we could do away with three strikes laws, which mean hugely inflated sentences for relatively minor crimes. Everybody knows how to do it. It's just a matter of political will. 
And also give compassionate release to old and infirm inmates who don't pose a real threat to the general population. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, a proposal to close Rikers Island, uh, the, the jail complex there in 2017, which would have involved diverting mentally ill prisoners to hospitals, speeding up court dispositions. What happened and why did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose uh, jurisdiction includes Rikers Island, why did she denounce that plan? Well, when there was a, I think the, the idea of closing Rikers was probably the single most radical thing Bill de Blasio did in his two terms as mayor, certainly the most radical thing he did in the criminal justice area. And he was hoping that he would mobilize a coalition of progressive groups to support um, the idea. And everybody knew there'd be some opposition from people in the neighborhoods where they proposed to put the new prison, the new jails. Um, that's normal, a normal obstacle that cities deal with when they're creating a, a new facility. But Rikers is hard to get to. I know I've uh, been there. Yeah. Not not as a prisoner, but I did an event there. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's one of the strongest arguments for closing it and replacing it with places more in mm -hmm. the neighborhood of the, mm -hmm. the people who are going to be in jail and their access to their lawyers as well. But and, and, they, and they did, in fact, get considerable support from progressive groups, but they also got opposition from the abolitionists who whose argument is no new prisons, but close the old prisons. And they never really, uh, as far as I'm aware of, um, the, the abolitionist camp never really came up with a proposal for what you were to do instead of Rikers Island. Well, because there are some of these people are quite dangerous and you really don't want them just wandering around in society. We have right. just about two minutes left, maybe one and a half minutes left. Is there anything you want to add uh, to sum up this conversation? Um, I'll add one thing, which is, in, it's sort of repeating something I've already said, but it's, it's kind of the heart of the book. Every year, we release 600,000 roughly or more people from state and federal prisons. And the choice that we face is to send them out into the world, alienated, brutalized, lacking in skills, with a big stigma attached to them, or impossible to, to get them, a job, impossible to get a job, impossible to get housing, especially if it's federally subsidized housing. And the alternative is to rehabilitate, and that to me becomes an easy choice. The book. What's Prison for? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration from Columbia Global Reports is written by Bill Keller, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and uh, the founding editor-in-chief of the Marshall Project. It has been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much for being with us and talking about this important subject, a subject that doesn't get enough attention. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your having me on. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And you might want to check us out on Twitter. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You may have noticed that we've been forced to preempt the show a number of times, and to some degree it's because of economic issues. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212. 209-2950 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, What's Prison for? Punishment and Rehabilitation in the Age of Mass Incarceration by Bill Keller. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, uh, for 10, 15, 20, 25, however many dollars a month you feel comfortable with, as long as you feel comfortable doing it. And we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly, give us that call, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org to keep this Historic Station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again on Friday. We're going to be off tomorrow, but we'll be here on Friday when my guest will be Thomas Pinsky, one of the authors of Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. Hope to see you then. <laughs>